0: Hello, friends, and welcome back to the Healthier Together podcast. I'm your host, Liz Moody, and I'm a best-selling author and longtime journalist. This podcast is all about helping you live your healthiest, happiest life, whether we're learning how to overcome trauma, getting doctor proof secrets for glowing skin, or uncovering top tips for networking like a pro. And yes, those are all real episodes, so if any of those topics sound good to you, scroll on back in the archives. This is a brand new edition of our super popular Ask the Doctor series. If you're new here, my Ask the Doctor episodes are based around the idea that functional medicine is truly life-changing, but great functional doctors can be hard to find and get appointments with, and unfortunately, quite expensive. On these episodes, I invite on some of the top doctors in the world, and I pepper them with all of your questions and mine about a topic. We have Ask the Doctors on longevity, happiness, hormones, anxiety, gut health, skin health, burnout, and more. So if you're interested in any of those topics, I highly recommend scrolling back in our old episodes, or we have an Ask the Doctor blog post that has all of the different Ask the Doctor episodes on it. Ask the Doctor episodes are meant to be super comprehensive and highly actionable. The goal is for you to always walk away armed with real ways to make a positive impact on your life and your health today. Now that we have that all covered, I am so excited to welcome Dr. Casey Means to the podcast. Dr. Means is a Stanford-trained physician, the chief medical officer and co-founder of the hugely successful metabolic health company, Levels, and an associate editor of the International Journal of Disease Reversal and Prevention. Today, we're diving into all things metabolism, which, as you'll hear at the beginning, is probably very different than what you're thinking. We get into what your metabolism actually is and why the word metabolism needs a rebrand, how to know if you're experiencing metabolic dysfunction, how your metabolic health is related to things like type 2 diabetes, Alzheimer's, dementia, fatty liver disease, stroke, heart attack, depression, PCOS, anxiety, gout, infertility, erectile dysfunction, chronic pain, brain fog, cancer, and more, and exactly what to do about it, what insulin is, and what it means to be insulin resistant how to hack your body to be more metabolically flexible, how to know if you're micronutrient deficient, what's actually happening in our bodies when we eat and how it changes depending on what the food that we're eating is, the five key components of a metabolism-supporting meal, the secret to making plant-based omega-3s way more effective, Dr. Means' favorite superfood that you probably have never heard of, why metabolic issues result in different diseases for different people, specific metabolism tests that you can ask your doctor for, how stress impacts your metabolism, the unexpected connection between trauma and metabolism, the impact of things like cold plunging, saunas, meditation, and more on metabolism, the importance of optimizing your circadian rhythm for metabolic health, how hormones play into metabolic health, especially as we age, how different phases of your period impact your metabolism, the best type of exercise for blood sugar balance, the truth about snacking and Dr. Means' healthy snack recommendations, and so much more. Whew, that was a lot. As you can see, we go deep in this episode, and Dr. Means and I would both love to hear your thoughts as you're listening. And I am so interested to hear what sticks with you the most out of all of her incredible wisdom. So definitely share and tag us both on Instagram. I am at Liz Moody, and she is at Dr. Casey's Kitchen. If something really resonates with you from this conversation, please share it with somebody that you love. There is literally knowledge in here that can change people's health and maybe even save their lives. And my hope is that as many people as possible can hear this conversation. Thank you so much for continuing to share and grow the podcast. I am convinced that I have the best community around and I love learning about all these topics alongside all of you. Also be sure to stick around till the end of the episode. We have an incredible giveaway worth $800 that you do not want to miss. It is the perfect thing to help you take control of your metabolic health. So stay tuned till the end to find out how to enter. One quick thing before we get into the conversation, if you haven't heard the news, we have officially relaunched our Healthier Together conversation card games, and we used all of your feedback to make them better than ever. We have the original deck, which is the perfect thing to pull out during holiday gatherings this year. It makes having really satisfying, fun conversations easy with 150 obsessively tested questions designed to spark the best chats of your entire life. And then we have our journaling deck. We're all in this together, which is unlike anything that you've seen before. The prompts use the latest in psychology and mindset research to dig into your past and present and help you create the future of your dreams. We've got Working Together, which is perfect for Zoom calls and happier office happy hours. And then finally, we have Raunchier Together, which has games, dares, and 100 plus question cards that really go there. They are perfect for a group dinner that you will not soon forget, or a bachelorette trip, or just a naughty night in with your partner. They all make amazing holiday gifts, so I highly recommend stocking up. Head to healthyconvo.co to see some sample questions and get your hands on a game before we sell out. Again, that is healthyconvo.co. Okay? Are you ready to hear about all things metabolism with Dr. Means? Let's get right into it. Casey, thank you so much for being here. I'm so excited to have you on the podcast today, and I know that my audience is
1: so excited as well. I am so excited to be here, Liz,
0: especially in person. I can't believe we were able to do this. It was so last minute and you are just like, are you in LA? I'm in LA (laughs) and it's so much fun to get to meet in person. It is. We have a ton of things to get into in terms of blood sugar today, so I want to just jump right into it. Can you explain to me first why blood sugar even matters? Like you were talking to a five-year-old. Why does it matter, especially if we're not thinking in terms of diabetes or the things that we often hear blood sugar in reference to?
1: Blood sugar is so important to understand because it's really a barometer of what's going on with our metabolic health. So really backing up, it's more about why is metabolic health so important and glucose is one of the things that we can look at to understand that. Metabolism is how we convert food to energy in the body. And what's so amazing about the human body is that there's about 37 trillion cells in the human body. And you'll hear different numbers between like 10 billion and 50 billion, but 37 billion is one stat I've seen quite a few times. And every single one of those cells needs energy to function properly. We do trillions of chemical reactions in every cell, like every minute. And that's what creates our life. That creates every single thought we have, every single action we take. And all of that needs to be powered by energy. And metabolism is what creates that from food. So you think about the spark of our life, the power of our life, and that is metabolism. And that's why it gets me so excited because right now we know that 93.2% of American adults have a problem. With metabolism. And we think of it as that root foundational thing that is required for all their health to be built from. If you don't have a car that has gas, it does not matter what paint job you have or what interior you have or even how much oil is in the car. If there's not gas, all those frills sort of don't work. And so we've got to get that right. And right now, in the typical American body, metabolism is under siege. And so fundamentally, it's really just how we convert the raw substrate of energy to a currency of energy we can use. And I like to think of it as a type of money that our body can spend to do basically all functions. It's so interesting
0: because I think that I always thought of metabolism in that like 90s magazine way. I feel like metabolism needs a rebrand because it was such a diet word, at least for me growing up. And I even have this reaction to it a little bit where I'm like, oh, I don't want to think about my metabolism because I've been told for years like, oh, speed up your metabolism. I've only heard it in the context of weight loss.
1: And it's so, so, so much more than that. Just kind of going back to high school biology and thinking about – that image of the cell. You've got that circular glob that's filled with all the organelles and you've got the mitochondria and the nucleus and you've got the ribosomes making the proteins and you've got the endoplasmic reticulum and you've got the vesicles swimming around and binding the cell membrane to release our neurotransmitters and release our hormones. But then you back up and you think for all of that to happen... Every single thing, it takes ATP. It takes this currency of energy to make it all happen. And we're struggling right now to basically make that currency effectively. It's so much more than weight loss or burning fat or things like that, that colloquial way of using energy. It's really so much more fundamental. And I think right now, when I say metabolism is under siege, we're in this interesting time where modern Western living on several vectors are all uniquely intersecting to hurt the machinery inside the body that allows that conversion to happen effectively. And specifically, a lot of it's intersecting by hurting the mitochondria. So the mitochondria is that place in the cell of where the final stages of the food to energy production happens. And this gets back to glucose because glucose is broken down and then eventually breakdown products of glucose are converted to ATP in the mitochondria. And You think about so many aspects of modern Western life, like that we're chronically dealing with low-grade stress, and now we're exposed to a lot more environmental toxins in our personal care products and fragrances and plastics and things like that. We have a micronutrient-depleted diet. We are getting less sleep than we have throughout human history. We're dealing with a really high-processed food culture that really concentrates things like glucose and fats in foods, and all of those things stress, micronutrient depletion, low sleep, chronic overnutrition, they all uniquely affect the mitochondria. The way we're living today is breaking this really key part of the cell that does that conversion, that creates the currency that gives us spark and gives us energy and gives us life. I think a lot of the focus is about how do we take off some of those stressors on the metabolic machinery of our bodies to kind of free up these parts of the body to more efficiently and effectively make energy, make good energy in the body. And when you do that, I suppose that could be kind of overlaid on fast metabolism because you're kind of making energy more efficiently. And I think the rebrand in part could be like, it's not about speeding up your metabolism. It's about optimizing mitochondrial function, optimizing metabolic pathways that we can do our most basic function of converting food to energy properly and not have a lot of damaging byproducts in that process or just not do enough of it so that we feel lethargic. One of the biggest complaints in primary care offices today is that people feel fatigued. They don't have enough energy, and that's just one of the many, many things that comes out of having a problem with the metabolic pathways, but we also know that so many of the other chronic diseases and pain points of modern living also stem from metabolic dysfunction. And you've got the big heavy hitters that we know are related to blood sugar issues or metabolic dysfunction, like type 2 diabetes, like Alzheimer's dementia, which is being called type 3 diabetes, fatty liver disease, stroke, heart attack, cancer. All of these are accelerated by people who do have metabolic dysfunction or one of the downstream consequences of that, which would be erratic blood sugar control. But also we know that depression, anxiety, gout, infertility, erectile dysfunction, chronic pain, brain fog, fatigue, these not lethal, but really the things that are really making our day-to-day lives more difficult are also in higher rates when our mitochondria are dysfunctional and we have metabolic dysfunction when our blood sugar is sort of out of control. So there's the big... Chronic disease heavy hitters, there's more of the pain points that we know are kind of harbingers for future issues, but all of this sort of centers around problems in the cell with how we convert food to energy. And so we definitely need that rebrand from just like metabolism is about weight to metabolism is how we power our bodies. A key point I think about a lot is that when cells don't get the power they need, cells become dysfunctional dysfunctional cells create dysfunctional tissue. Dysfunctional tissue is dysfunctional organs. That is symptoms and disease. It's pretty simple. It's like cells, they're not powered properly. We get symptoms and disease. And the reason that there's so many diseases and so many symptoms that are related to metabolic dysfunction is because depending on what cell type this is showing up in, it could have many different faces. If this is happening in the ovary, it could look like PCOS. If this is happening in the brain, it could look like dementia, depression, anxiety, chronic pain, migraines, all conditions related to metabolic dysfunction. If it's happening in the blood vessels, it could look like retinopathy, erectile dysfunction, heart disease. Where this is showing up can look like different things, but the core pathway is the same, which is a dysfunctional cell. And it just can look like a lot of different things it can show up in, in any cell type.
0: Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should at least be simple. That's why for more than five years now, I've been drinking AG1. It's just one scoop mixed in water, and it makes me feel energized and focused without any kind of caffeine jitters. I discovered AG1 after a ton of research because I was looking for one simple habit I could incorporate into my day that would support my entire body and cover my nutritional bases. No matter what the rest of the day looks like, I know that I'm getting essential brain, gut, and immune health support. I just mix a scoop of AG1 into my water. I think it tastes delicious too, which I know people are always nervous about, but I think it's like a tropical vanilla flavor and I crave it, especially because I associate the flavor with feeling so good. Of course, we're always trying to eat our fruits and vegetables and balanced meals over here, but nobody is perfect. So AG1 helps support me with 75 vitamins, minerals, whole food source superfoods and adaptogens. I especially love it for all of the travel I've been doing. I think it's a huge reason why I still feel so good and have avoided getting sick despite being on a plane a few times a week for so much of this year and having to eat out so often. AG1 is rigorously third-party tested, which you know I always look out for. It also has less than one gram of sugar, no GMOs, and no artificial anything. AG1 is one of the highest quality products to elevate your health, and that's why I've partnered with them for so long. So if you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3 and K2 and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com/slash Lizmoody. That's drinkag1.com slash Lizmoody. Check it out. My favorite health hacks are the ones that have the biggest payoffs for the smallest amounts of effort, and this is such a good one. When you are drinking your tea or coffee in the morning, just add one packet or scoop of Great Lakes Wellness collagen peptides. I definitely was a bit of a collagen skeptic until I had dermatologist, Dr. Whitney Bowe on the podcast. You can scroll back to her Ask the Doctor episode. She said, it is not a myth. There is research to support how great collagen is for your skin. And then of course I did my own deep dive and I was so impressed with the known benefits for things like your skin, your hair, and your joint health. Studies show that collagen can help improve your skin's hydration, which is something that I am especially looking for during this time of year when everything just feels a little bit drier. Zach likes the marine collagen, and then I like the grass-fed beef collagen, but both are incredibly well-sourced and certified by third parties, which is the number one thing that I look for. And since I've started incorporating collagen into my everyday routine, I have noticed strong and healthy nails, and my hair feels thicker, and fuller, which we love, and Zach's knees are feeling so good despite all of the time that he is spending running. One of my favorite things about the Great Lakes Wellness Collagen Peptides is that I cannot taste them at all, and they dissolve so well in hot and cold beverages. Not all collagen can dissolve in cold beverages, and some days you just want an iced tea. To try out Great Lakes Wellness collagen packets or their bigger tubs, use code Liz Moody for 25% off. Yes, 25% off. That is a huge discount off of your first purchase at greatlakeswellness.com. That is Liz Moody for 25% off at greatlakeswellness.com. Okay. I have so many questions. First of all, does low or high blood sugar cause this fuel issue that causes all of these downstream issues? Is it like one thing, the stress and the environmental disruptors or et cetera, or do the stress and the environmental disruptors and all of those things impact our blood sugar, which impacts the fuel? Like is blood sugar one of the things or is everything kind of
1: filtering through the blood sugar? That's like the best question, and the answer is it's bidirectional. So I think what I'm hearing you say is that like, okay, we we're hearing a lot about blood sugar right now, right? And is it that we just spike our blood sugar over and over and over again, and then we get metabolic dysfunction, or is it that all these things lead to metabolic dysfunction and then we get erratic blood sugar?
0: And is lower high blood sugar just one thing on the list of things that's causing metabolic dysfunction, or are all these other things causing blood sugar spikes and crashes which are contributing
1: to the metabolic dysfunction? Such a nuanced and perfect question and one that I think is really important to address because especially with me being a co-founder of a glucose monitoring company, a lot of people are like, oh, the only job I have to do is lower my glucose levels. I just need to keep flat glucose. That's not actually the goal. We're actually here to create a metabolically healthy body that keeps glucose more stable. So there are about eight things that I think about. That are the main things that lead to metabolic dysfunction which then will result in worse glucose control. And one of those things like you said is too much glucose, but it's not the only thing. So, the factors that go into hurting a cell's metabolic function is food factors and it doesn't just need to be glucose chronic overnutrition of any kind like way too much fat, way too much refined carbohydrates it can do what's called nutrient stress on the cell. It's just like barraging the cell with too much work to convert. And so you get nutrient stress, which can cause inflammation, can cause oxidative stress in the cell, like damaging byproducts from just being overloaded. We're eating more today than we have in the past because we have all these high-density processed foods. Sometimes I take the analogy of like Imagine it's a cheese factory, and this factory has been going along great, gets milk deliveries every day, and it goes through the assembly line, and you make cheese. And then all of a sudden, one day, the factory gets 50 times more milk than it was ever supposed to get it's not like you'd make 50 times more cheese that day. The workers would freak out. There wouldn't be enough refrigerator space. You wouldn't be able to get it all through the door. And it would just be a total shit show. And you would probably actually end up making less cheese because everyone's confused. And that's kind of what's happening with our cells with chronic overnutrition is that there's just so much to handle. And by asking the cell to convert all of that, you actually create damaging byproducts like reactive oxygen species, which is when you have an excess of those, it's called oxidative stress. But that can hurt the cell and lead to mitochondrial dysfunction and kind of lead to issues with insulin resistance and how the cell processes glucose in the future. So yes, over in the body chronically with high fructose, high glucose, high refined carbohydrates, high saturated fat, high nutrient stress can be one of those factors. So that's food. And I'll run through the other ones more quickly. Sleep deprivation, chronic stress, Micronutrient depletion, so not having enough of the minerals and the vitamins that are required. So, overnutrition, sleep deprivation, chronic stress, micronutrient issues, sedentary behavior, environmental toxin overload, microbiome issues, and light issues. So, not getting enough sunlight during the day. All those things we know can lead to some issues with our metabolism. So, when we think about creating the most metabolically healthy body, I'm thinking on all those planes maximal micronutrients. Not overstressing my body with nutrient stress, getting adequate sleep, getting enough movement throughout the day, making sure my stress levels are in control, focusing on my microbiome, getting sunlight when I'm supposed to be getting it and not getting too much blue light when I'm not, and then avoiding as many environmental toxins as possible. And in my mind, that milieu is how we create ultimately cellular health, metabolic health, mitochondrial function, et cetera. So let's say those things are off. We do end up with some mitochondrial dysfunction. That can then result in the cell not processing glucose effectively, right? So then you can get the downstream erratic glucose levels. So it's the cause
0: and the effect. Yeah, exactly. That's annoying.
1: But what I love about it is that there's a lot of different levers and knobs to turn to get on top of this. And what will make you more metabolically healthy may be totally different than what will make me more metabolically healthy. Maybe for me, it's that I'm skimping on sleep. I've got some unresolved trauma and I'm just love fructose rich foods or something. And those are my three things, but maybe for you, it's actually like more environmental toxins and sedentary things or something like that. So that's why I really love a functional medicine approach is because you really have to look at the person and be like, in your body, in your life, what are the things we need to focus on? Because there's a lot that goes into the cell being functional and the mitochondria working. And one of those things, of course, is trying to not have chronically elevated and up and down glucose swings that stress the cell.
0: Are there micronutrient deficiencies that you find are particularly common in having these downstream effects?
1: Yeah. The micronutrient thing is such a fascinating topic because more than half Americans are now deficient in key micronutrients. And we talk a lot about macronutrients, you know, fat, protein, carbs, but the little molecules that actually make the cell work properly are the micronutrients. They're like the lock and key cofactors that let things in the cell work. And specifically with metabolism, for example, magnesium, which a lot of people are deficient in, For ATP to actually be functionally active in the cell, it has to have magnesium bound to it. So you might be making all the great ATP, but if you're magnesium deficient, the ATP is not going to work properly. Also zooming in on the mitochondria, the final step in converting glucose to ATP is this five protein sort of thing called the electron transport chain. And each of these proteins basically like pass electrons. It'll ultimately create this proton gradient that is used to power the creation of ATP. And each of those protein structures in the electron transport chain require specific micronutrients to actually function properly. So things like manganese, magnesium, vitamin C, a lot of B vitamins. And so if we're depleting those, our little structures to do this stuff are not going to work Properly, And one of the things I'm super passionate about right now is soil health and regenerative agriculture and more sustainable farming practices because part of the reason that our food is becoming more and more micronutrient depleted is not just because we're processing a lot of our food and getting rid of a lot of those really important vitamin, minerals, antioxidants, but also because our soil now has been so depleted of biodiversity that the bacteria fungi, nematodes that actually do the processing of micronutrients in the soil so our food can actually have those nutrients are all being killed by pesticides and industrial farming practices. I really think that the improvement in our chronic disease epidemic is going to need to go hand in hand with actually regenerating our soil because we're just not getting the bang for our buck from the food we're eating. And even if you're eating the quote-unquote perfect diet and you're shopping at Whole Foods and you're eating all these plants and the food actually now just has so much less nutrient value and even if we're talking about meat most people think of phytonutrients like protective plant chemicals as stuff that you only get in plants but actually animals grown on regenerative soil have lots of phytonutrients in them but they have to be eating phytonutrient rich plants and so it's just a whole cycle and all of these protective factors that come from our food are getting depleted. So that also kind of fits with the micronutrient conversation and I think is something we definitely clinicians need to be dialed in on. We need to be advocating for how food is grown because it makes a huge impact on health outcomes.
0: So if somebody listening were looking to optimize their metabolic health, which I'm sure everybody listening will want to after listening to you talk about all the benefits of that, would you recommend that they get a micronutrient panel to see where they stand on all of those things? Do you recommend supplementing because, like you said, we're not able to get all of those nutrients from our food
1: anymore? I think that… There's different levels of how intense you want to get into this stuff. I think the foundational thing that people can do that can be helpful is try and minimize ultra-processed foods in the diet. So take things that they might enjoy that they're eating that are still ultra-processed and see if there's like a slightly less refined form. So an example of this for me would be moving from like chips and conventional crackers to More like siete chips, you know, grain free, and then ultimately moving more to Ella's flats and flax crackers. So I'm going from really refined to a little bit less refined to actually what is almost a whole food. Like flax crackers and the Ella's flats literally just are nuts and seeds. Like you can only eat so much in a
0: day. And since we're all a little bit micronutrient depleted, likely trying to get as many
1: nutrients in every single bite. Exactly. I think about that all the time. We consume about. Again, these are rough estimates like two to three pounds of food per day, two to three pounds per day of opportunity to utilize that molecular, that material to do a few things. So the two things that food do aside from, of course, all the joy that it brings us is it builds our body. And then it tells our body what to do. So it's molecular information that's both structural and informational. And so when I'm thinking about food, I'm thinking, okay, I want to build the best structure possible because we know that structure leads to function. And I also want to put in the best possible information that I can to hopefully lead to help outcomes that are going to make me happier fundamentally and healthier. That is actually, to me, quite motivating. I want to maximize the limited number of calories and quantity of food I have today to serve what my real goals and interests are, which is long term contentment and health and, and things like that. Of course, I still will have treats or whatnot here or there, but the most great information we can get in our body per day, the better we're going to feel. And then for people who want to go deeper, I think there are some really great micronutrient tests these days. You can get some. At-home micronutrient testing from Let's Get Checked, from Everly Well, from Routine. If you want to work with a functional medicine doctor, you can do NutraVal, which is a test through Genova Diagnostics that looks at tons and tons of micronutrients. And it's a urine and blood test. And that can help you dial in like how to supplement. But not just how to supplement, where to emphasize things in your diet. If it says that your magnesium is functionally low, then hit the pumpkin seed. if it says your omega-3s are low, hit the sardines and the mackerel and the salmon and the chia and the walnuts. And if your selenium's low, hit the Brazil nuts and zinc like oysters. And so it actually lays all that out in the report of what foods you can lean on. I think when you get a basic understanding of what micronutrients the body needs, where they come from and what the outcomes are, it makes it a lot easier to choose food. Like I know that like pistachios have some melatonin in them and that pumpkin seeds have magnesium in them and both those help with my sleep so I'll eat those later at night. Are there any other super nutrient dense foods that you love that you feel like people maybe don't think of? Well, backing up a little bit, there's five things I think about when I'm crafting the most metabolically healthy meal and it's maximize micronutrients and antioxidants, maximize fiber, maximize omega-3s, maximize probiotics and healthy bacterial sources and then minimize refined grains and sugars with almost every meal i'm trying to maximize those things so i have my favorites kind of within each category for fiber i'm really into basil seeds right now so hmm. basil seeds are exactly like chia seeds but they have twice the omega-3s twice the antioxidant capacity where do you get them
0: you can buy them online and do they get gelatinous like they're chia exactly seeds
1: they're exactly the same so as will chia you seeds. make like a chia pudding basil seed pudding i sprinkle it on salads i put them in smoothies When I eat fruit, I usually drizzle tahini or almond butter and then sprinkle some basil seeds. And I think like two tablespoons has 15 grams of fiber. I'm shooting for about 50 to 75 grams of fiber a day. So it's just a really easy way to get some more. But chia seeds are also great. They have tons of fiber. I eat a ton of sauerkraut. I just adore going to... The whole foods and just like picking the most colorful, fun sauerkraut. And they're
0: different everywhere, which is one of my favorite things. Or like you go to the farmer's market and you get their local fermented products. And I think it's kind of like a fun way to explore a region.
1: It totally is.
0: So you're adding sauerkraut to most of your meals. To and by sauerkraut, are you using that more universally?
1: Yeah. I mean kraut with basically any truly fermented vegetable. I love beet kraut, fermented asparagus, really anything that's fermented and There's been some recent studies. Like, I loved your episode with Dr. Robin. Robin Chetkin. Yes, amazing. She talks about the American Gut Project and how you want to get like 30 different plant foods per week. And then, recent Stanford research showed that six servings probiotic rich foods per day is actually ideal. So, kind of loading it up if I have eggs, Kraut. If I have salad, Kraut. If I have a a bean bowl kraut, and it also makes things so much more colorful, which I really enjoy. So, kraut, basil seeds, and then I eat a lot of sardines and mackerel, like canned. So, that's omega-3s. So, that gets the omega-3. Those are three things. Do you have favorite vegan omega-3s? Yeah, certainly fish oil supplements. And then the algal DHA, I think, is the best option. But, like, you're not into flax seeds. I know they convert poorly. Yeah. No, I am. I mean, I love them and I eat a lot of upstream omega-3s. So coming from chia, basil seeds, flax seeds, walnuts, and get the alpha-linoleic acid. I was vegan for a long time and actually feel really amazing on a plant-based diet. And a lot of people say like, oh, if you're just eating plant-based omega-3s, eventually you're going to have problems and all this stuff. But I think something we need to realize is that if you understand the biochemistry, I think there's ways to really hack it and optimize it. Like these enzymes that convert ALA to EPA and DHA they also require tons of micronutrients. So like if you're going to be eating all ALA, make sure your micronutrients that help you convert them are of the proper level. Isn't that a thing with your microbiome
0: too, that if you don't have a flourishing microbiome, you're not actually able to absorb as many
1: micronutrients from your food? Absolutely. I mean, dysbiosis is going to totally change digestion. That's a great point. A four on my list would be cruciferous vegetables because the cruciferous vegetable family has a sulforaphane and is going to upregulate our antioxidant defense systems. And I just love how you eat these vegetables and they literally go in and change your genetic expression. It's so amazing. have Ask the Doctor epigenetic
0: edition that's all about how we can change how our DNA expresses itself, which is
1: insane. The fifth one was actually the one that's more about taking stuff out, which is minimizing the refined grains and added sugars. In that category – For me, that just comes down to a lot of swaps. I'm the swap queen. I just love swapping out something that's a refined grain or sugar for something that's not. So an example of this would be like cauliflower rice for rice or broccoli rice for rice or tiger nut flour in my pancakes or using dates instead of refined sugar or something like that.
0: And then you said that basically if we're not fueling our cells, they're getting damaged and that can cause everything from damaged cells in your brain to damaged cells in your uterus to damaged cells in just all of these different parts of your body. What decides which cells get damaged? Like why are some people getting PCOS as a result of this and some people getting neurodegenerative diseases? Yeah, such a good
1: question. And I actually think that the answer to that is not fully, fully understood Something I've thought about it a lot, I think one thing we do know is that there's this concept of comorbidity, which is that diseases often come in packs. Like you get heart disease and stroke and dementia, or we see type 2 diabetes with cancer and things like that. And so we know that often collections of different groups of cells often get affected in concert with each other. But exactly why two women with insulin resistance, like one gets PCOS and like one more gets fatty liver disease I don't think it's completely known. My hunch is that there's multiple hits that have to happen for some real symptoms and disease to emerge. So maybe there's also an underlying hormonal issue that's happening that in combination with insulin resistance kind of tips over the edge to polycytic ovarian syndrome, whereas someone else has some brewing, mitochondrial dysfunction, insulin resistance, and they're also on like a really high fructose diet, which we know uniquely affects the liver. So maybe that person gets the fatty liver disease manifestation. So that's kind of how I think about it is like there might be person-specific hits that are specifically affecting certain it's organs. It's like a cocktail a little it's bit. It's a cocktail, yeah. Are there diseases
0: that if somebody came to you and was like, I have this disease, you would be like, I definitely think you should look into your metabolic flexibility.
1: Like, this is very likely at the root of this. Well, I think in the world we're living in today where we know that nearly 100% of Americans, nearly 93%, have at least one biomarker of metabolic dysfunction, there's almost no one in the world that I wouldn't have dig into this. There's almost no disease that's not worsened by poor metabolism. So if someone is suffering, that's one thing that's very actionable. So like, let's make sure it's okay. I was with Dr. Terry Walls yesterday, who is one of my heroes. She wrote the Walls Protocol. She's one of the preeminent experts in the world on autoimmune disease, specifically MS. But in her viral TED Talk, Minding Your Mitochondria, is really all about how fundamentally like autoimmune disease is disease of mitochondria. And she's the MS sort of person, but she says, no, this applies to all autoimmune diseases. And again, this gets back to your question of why would one person get lupus? Well, where one person gets MS if it's all mitochondrial issues. And I actually, I asked her a very similar question when I interviewed her on my podcast. And I think she said something similar, which is that it's not totally known, but it kind of has to do with what else is going on in the body. So got to figure out the answer to that question at some point. For instance, someone with autoimmune disease, I feel like probably 99% of rheumatologists or doctors dealing with those things are not going to tell their patient to look at their blood sugar or look at their insulin, but from Terry Walls' perspective, she thinks every single person with autoimmune disease should make sure their insulin levels are under control, their blood sugar levels are under control, that they're looking at those parts of their lab testing to make sure that that's optimized because it's, it's something you can do something about like very quickly. And there's also a phenomenal book coming out from a Harvard psychiatrist called Brain Energy. And he talks about how every single mental health issue that we know of today in some way is related to metabolic issues in ways the cells are functioning. And so for anyone dealing with these issues, you want to at least look under the hood of what's happening with these metabolic pathways. So I actually see it as very empowering. So how do we look under the hood? How do we know if we're metabolically flexible? Are there tests that we can ask our doctor for? There's several different things that you can look at. The simplest thing, of course, is like the standard criteria for diagnosing metabolic issues, which is going to be like the American Diabetes Association criteria for if you have prediabetes or type 2 diabetes, which are the most prototypical metabolic issues. And so that would be looking at your fasting glucose, which you can do with a finger prick or you can do in a yearly blood test. Or, of course, you can look on a continuous glucose monitor. And if your blood glucose is under 100, they'll say, you know, you're non-diabetic. If it's between 100 and 125, they'll say you have prediabetes, 126 or above, type 2 diabetes. Based on looking at the research, I actually think we probably need to have some tighter criteria for that because what we actually know is that a fasting glucose between about 70 and 85 milligrams per deciliter is probably going to lead to much better health outcomes than if you're in the higher range of normal, which is like 85 to 100. So even if the doctor is testing your glucose and says, oh, you're totally fine, you're under 100, you should be drilling in deeper than that. You should really be looking for that lower end of normal because we know health outcomes are better when it's a little bit tighter. And by the time you actually get up to a fasting glucose of 100, you may actually have a lot of metabolic issues that have been brewing for 5, 10 years. And so that gets me another test that I think is really quite useful, which is a fasting insulin test. Quick detour to sort of the physiology for blood sugar to be taken out of the blood and into the cells. It requires the pancreas to release this hormone called insulin. And as we develop metabolic dysfunction – within our cells um, and mitochondrial dysfunction, the cells will essentially become resistant to insulin signal because the cell is saying like, we're not processing glucose well in here. It's not working well in here right now. We've been overloaded with glucose. We've been overloaded with all these other stressors that we talked about. We don't want more in this cell. It's like the cheese factory. No more milk inside the factory. The body is so smart and says, okay, insulin, we're not listening to you anymore. And the cell receptor actually becomes numb to it. But the body's smart and the body's like, well, we're getting that glucose out of the bloodstream. We're gonna get it into the cell because we don't want it in the bloodstream because too much blood sugar in the bloodstream leads to inflammation and it leads to glucose sticking to things and causing dysfunction. And we don't want that in the bloodstream. So then the pancreas produces all this extra insulin to like force the milk into the factory, force the glucose into the cell. And that actually works for a little while. It actually can overcompensate the insulin resistance and drive the glucose into the cell. So what happens is, your fasting blood sugar may actually look pretty normal, but actually your insulin levels are rising to overcompensate for the insulin resistance. So if you can ask your doctor for a fasting insulin test, you might see that that's actually quite high even if your fasting glucose looks normal. So then you can imagine it will take a lot of time for that whole compensatory system to break down. And only when that starts happening does the fasting glucose start rising. So by the time you've gotten up to 100 That whole, like, insulin resistance, hyperinsulinemia process may have been happening for, like, a decade. And there was a really interesting paper from The Lancet a few years ago that basically showed that, saying insulin resistance and compensatory high insulin levels are happening a long time before fasting glucose starts coming up because it's the body's way of essentially compensating. So lower fasting glucose, the better. So those are two ways. Look at your fasting glucose, like, if it's creeping up above... 85 and certainly if it's in the hundreds, definitely something to think about. Ask your doctor fa- for a fasting glucose test. They will probably push back and be like, oh, we don't order those. You don't have diabetes. And it's like the test is literally like $15. I just, it's like, I, doctors <laughs> make me so like, Give me angry the test. <laughs> demand a, the test. Demand the test. And a lot of different functional medicine doctors will have different ranges, but typically we've culled all of the different expert recommendations about this. And Really less than 10 is what you really want, but even 2 and 6 is probably ideal for fasting insulin. Of course, the reference range on a lot of lab tests will be under 25 is totally fine, but if you look at the research, a tighter range like between 2 and 6 and certainly under 10 is ideal for fasting insulin. There's other tests that are commonly ordered in the doctor's office like a hemoglobin A1C, which is looking at about a 90-day average of your blood sugar, standard range of below 5.7, but again... Tighter is probably better. So, around more like five or so, 5%. The hemoglobin A1c is a fascinating test because it gets back to that point around sugar sticking to things. If the sugar is chronically higher in your bloodstream, in the concentration in the blood is high, it literally just sticks to anything and it will stick to hemoglobin in the red blood cells. And so, what that test is looking at is what percentage of your hemoglobin in your red blood cells is glycated, meaning sugar is stuck to it. So that's why the the test is done in a percentage. So you want it to be – lower because that's representing generally lower concentration. Glycation is actually really one of the underlying factors that leads to wrinkles because collagen is one of the most abundant proteins in the entire body. And when sugar sticks to collagen, it cross-links it and makes the protein structure in the skin actually somewhat different. And that is actually one of the root causes of what leads to wrinkles. And so I just think that's like a So if you don't want
0: to be metabolically flexible for your health, do it for your vanity?
1: I mean, it's something I think
0: about. I will say your skin looks phenomenal. There's Botox in here. <laughs> I can't lie and say, yeah, that it's all the blood sugar. So but so it's you. a mix. We on it's this mix.
1: podcast we love a mix. I'm not gonna pretend that this is all glucose. Okay, so any other tests that we should be asking for? Fasting glucose, fasting insulin, hemoglobin A1C, and then of course, if you wanna put a continuous glucose monitor on. You can just take a look at your glucose 24 hours a day and see what's happening with more of the glucose dynamics because all of those are more snapshots. Trends can also be very helpful because fasting glucose can change day to day. What's really interesting about some of those tests that are single snapshots is if you get four hours of sleep the night before your blood test, your fasting insulin and fasting glucose could be higher because these things can actually change based on even one very poor night of sleep or something like that. So while they can be useful continuous monitors can tell you a little bit more about like what's happening day to day. Like, oh, when I get really good sleep, my fasting glucose is 73. And when I get terrible sleep, my fasting glucose is 81. And oh, my hemoglobin A and C, which is my average, looks pretty good. It's maybe like 5.2, but goodness, I'm spiking up from 90 before my meals to 180 after my meals, like three times a day, if I keep this up for a long time, that hemoglobin A1C is definitely going to go up over time. So you can actually start to use it as a way to get a little bit more granularity about trends in your glucose dynamics and metabolic health and start to understand behavioral factors that may lead to more stable glucose. Because fundamentally, we'd like to see more of like gentle small rolling hills on our glucose monitor more stability and not huge up and down spikes because over time those are like we were talking about earlier kind of stressing your whole system and can lead to problems down the road when we're young and otherwise healthy we can compensate for a lot of that but we don't want those spikes all the time not just for the long-term issues but also for the short-term way we feel like when you spike quite high, you often will deal with what's called reactive hypoglycemia afterwards, which is where you spike and your body's like, oh my God, so much glucose and releases all this insulin and then actually overshoots and you crash. And it's that reactive dip that is often when people feel anxiety, tired, and have cravings. So there's not only power in Glucose monitoring for understanding your trends over time and behavioral factors, but also like in the short term, we often feel just a little bit better when we don't have the really big spikes. I have a product
0: that is going to change your life. I've recommended this to so many people and they are all floored. It's basically a perfect dupe for the viral Laneige lip mask, but a million times better and with ingredients that are clinically proven to help dry lips And actually good for you, which is important because you're essentially eating anything that goes on your lips. It is the Osmia Lip Repair Overnight Mask, and it feels like heaven. And you're going to want one for yourself and also to stock up and give them as gifts because they are the best present. They help my dry lips when nothing else works, and I will never be without mine now. And while you're on the Osmia site, you are going to want to stock up on the bar soaps. This is the original product that Dr. Sarah Villafranco, the founder, created, and they have converted me to bar soaps after years of not being able to take the plunge. They're cured longer, so they last way longer than any other bar soap I have ever found, which is amazing for travel. I have been traveling so much recently, and I've had literally the same bar of soap. And they smell amazing, and they do not dry out your skin. Go with the scent that speaks to your soul, but Coffee Mint is my personal favorite. Finally, if you remember Sarah's pod episode, she has a whole line of products that help with skin conditions like perioral dermatitis, which is when you get red and broken out around your mouth, eczema, and acne even when nothing else works. She's famous for this. So start with the Black Clay Facial Soap and the Purely Simple Face Cream if you are like, oh yes, that is me. If you'd like to try any Osmia skincare products for yourself, they have so generously created a code for the Liz Moody podcast listeners. Code Liz Moody is good for 20% off your first order with Osmia at osmiaskincare.com. Once again, code Liz Moody is good for 20% off your first order with Osmia at osmiaskincare.com. Money was such a source of anxiety for me for a long time. I'm always talking about building good, healthy habits, but I didn't have any when it came to financial wellness. Once I started getting educated about my money, I began to feel empowered about it, and pretty soon I was like, how did I let this cause me so much anxiety for so long? If you are struggling just like I was, you need to check out YNAB. YNAB is an app that teaches a set of simple money habits to help you spend, save, and give without guilt or second-guessing. It's one of the apps that experts I talk to recommend over and over because it's grounded in techniques that you won't see anywhere else that actually work. You start off by learning four simple core habits that are actually genius and have completely changed the way that I think about money. And then it guides you through saving so you are never caught off guard by a surprise expense again so you feel safe and secure with money. But maybe more importantly, it also helps you fit the things that you love into your spending plan so that you know you have the money for that bachelorette party or that weekend getaway that you've been dreaming of. Also, and I love this, you can add up to six users to one account. So if you manage money as roommates or with your partner, it has got you covered. It has incredibly high ratings on all platforms and has become a huge cult hit because it's helped millions of people actually build the financial life of their dreams, even people who truly thought it was impossible. Check out YNAB and learn the habits with a one-month free trial, no credit card required at www.ynab.com. YNAB.com slash Liz Moody. You'll get a month completely free and be able to see for yourself what a big difference it makes. I promise you're going to get back way more than you spend. That's www.YNAB.com slash Liz Moody. I'd love to get into some of those factors in a really nuanced way. So I'm going to play a little game. I have a list of things and I would love to know kind of in a specific way, if these things impact our metabolic health and in what way, if they do. Some of them, maybe they don't at all. Some of them, maybe they really do. So let's just get into it. Okay. Stress, I feel like is a yes. You've talked about stress, but can you get a little bit specific about how stress impacts our metabolic health? Stress is a huge factor.
1: Our mitochondria actually have glucocorticoid stress hormone receptors in them. It's very much related to our metabolic health. One thing we know about stress is that when you have an acute stressor, like you're giving a talk in front of a thousand people or something, if that stresses person out, the body will get flooded with stress hormones. And the body does that for an adaptive purpose. The body's like, oh, you're having a stressful event. There must be a threat looming And that means you probably need to run. Like you're probably gonna have to run from something right now, like run off that stage because it's a very dangerous situation. And those stress hormones go to the liver and there's all this stored glucose in the liver for moments like this. And the stress hormones cause the liver to dump that glucose into the bloodstream to feed the muscles so you can escape whatever stressful threat is happening. And then you're just standing there on the stage. (laughs) Or sitting at your computer. There's no glucose sink to take it up because we're not running from the lion.
0: So then if we're anxious, if we feel really stressed, should we like do five squats so our muscles can be activated and absorb some of that like extra glucose?
1: I think there's two great things to do in that situation. One is to move a little bit for two reasons. One, because I think movement helps with anxiety generally. And two, because yeah, I think you can soak up some of that glucose and not have it just like sitting there in your bloodstream doing nothing, causing glycation, inflammation, and oxidative stress and all this stuff. Our muscles are one of our most energy hungry organs. I mean, our brain very much so as well, but muscles just like a sponge for glucose. It's almost like a freebie because if you are walking, you're activating so many muscle groups, all of which need glucose. So it'll just soak it up out of the bloodstream and actually utilize it, not store it. Before it starts like sticking to things and causing issues. If you're just stressed and there's no sink, it'll literally just sit there and your body's going to release all that insulin and it's going to kind of do that whole pathway. So what I like to do is move and then take like 10 diaphragmatic deep breaths. Tell the body that it's safe. Will that turn off the glucose dump or is it too late by then? I think it all helps. I mean, I think that the the interesting thing is that so many of us are living with chronic anxiety or feeling low-grade stress all the time.
0: So then if we're feeling low-grade, like we're not giving a speech in front of a thousand people, but we're just kind of like waking up and looking at our to-do list and feeling anxious or a little bit stressed all the time, are we mildly
1: glucose dumping all the time? I don't know the exact answer to that, but there's a couple things we do know. One I would say is that there are these patients who are kind of doing everything right with food and with exercise who still are having metabolic issues and higher glucose levels. And I have seen that people who really get the stress and the coping under control can sometimes be one of the linchpins to help them. And so there's that. I think another thing to know is that it's very clear in the literature that people who have had a higher number of adverse childhood events have much worse metabolic I hate when
0: people say this, I had some childhood trauma, and yeah. it's always very annoying to me when I'm like, I've done so much work, and I, you know what
1: I mean? I don't think it's a permanent thing that you can't get out of. It's just like a good reason to be in therapy now. I mean, to me, being in therapy is like part of the metabolic health toolkit for everyone basically. Can you
0: tell that to my insurance? I mean truly. It's a really nice way to think about it that therapy is for your mind which is so important but it's also for your entire body.
1: Absolutely. So much of what I think about with the body and my framework of sort of being a physician is like we just need to have like radical empathy for ourselves. Our cells are getting barraged with modern living and just like all the normals are hurting them and they just want what they need and they don't want to be hurt by things they don't need. When my nephew or my goddaughter, who are three months and eight months, cry, it's like they either need milk, a diaper change, a nap, or a temperature change, you know? And I'm like, it's actually kind of like that with the body. We either need micronutrients or omega-3s or less inflammation or whatever. And it's just matching what the body needs to what you give it is kind of what health is. But getting back to the idea of like, Trauma and therapy, I think when some of these things that go unaddressed, and it, unfortunately, there's not been too much research showing, like, what about people like you or like me who like address these things? Let's just talk about unaddressed childhood trauma. It's living in your brain, it's living in your body as a sense, I think, of chronic hypervigilance that is just constantly telling your cells that there's a threat because there was a threat and that threat got unprocessed. And so, I think if we can relieve the embedded hypervigilance, which I think is very possible, deep therapy, somatic therapies, psychedelics, you know, all the things, deep meditation, you're like releasing the grip on these poor little cells of thinking like every moment is unsafe. And so I don't know exactly how that translates into like our cortisol levels minute to minute and our glucose levels minute to minute, but there's definitely a whole orbit there because we do know that these experiences translate into metabolic issues over the long term. We also know that there's been studies looking at like workplace stress and glucose levels. And people who have higher perceived level of stress in the workplace tend to have worse glucose fluctuations and things like that. So I think it comes down to making it a priority to make sure our bodies are not sensing constant threat. And of course, there's many ways to do that, but we should probably all be doing at least like one of them to help release some of that.
0: Are there studies that show the efficacy of something like meditation
1: for metabolic flexibility? There's studies looking at meditation. There's studies looking at yoga. I actually haven't seen studies about therapy. So I'd be interested. And I know there are people who are looking at psychedelics and metabolic health. Because I think there's been some anecdotal evidence showing that people have had some of these psychotherapy-assisted psychedelic sessions. Sometimes they just get healthier generally. After those, of course, it has been profound for depression and anxiety of end-of-life things, These these recent studies that are coming out, but actually getting healthier generally. And it's like, why is that happening? I think there's a lot to dig into there that I'm really excited to see come down the pipeline. That's so interesting. What about Hot and cold therapy, things like sauna and cold plunge? Both have been shown to be positive for metabolic health for totally different reasons. Hot, like sauna use, can activate a family of genes in the body called heat shock proteins, like Bikram yoga, sauna, things like that. And those can affect the way we take up glucose out of the bloodstream. And then in terms of cold, cold is really cool Basically, if you're putting the body under a stress where it needs to create more warmth, it stimulates the body to actually make more mitochondria and promotes mitochondrial biogenesis. And cold may actually help us produce this type of fat called brown fat. Most of our fat is like white fat. (laughs) But babies actually have a lot of this type of fat called brown fat. And the reason it's brown is because it's filled with mitochondria and it generates heat and it helps babies thermoregulate. But we actually lose it as we get older. So we want to produce more of this tissue that has all this mitochondria and talk about like boosting metabolism. Brown fat is essentially like the definition of boosting metabolism because it's like you're just burning through more energy. So cold therapy, certainly in animal models, has been shown to increase quantity of brown fat. So that's something I've been doing a lot of cold therapy recently with cold plunging. And I aim for about 12 minutes total per week in the 30 to 40 degrees range. And I find it to be both exhilarating, but Also, this is anecdotal. I think that it keeps me a little more steady during the day because, like, you're basically telling your muscles, like, generate warmth, burn through stuff. So I think both are great. I think I probably lean a little bit more towards cold for acute effects because you're literally telling your body to, like, ramp it up. You know, we got to create heat. So – that's going to help burn through some glucose.
0: And then you mentioned light exposure earlier. I want to dig into that a little bit. How can we optimize our light exposure to optimize our metabolic
1: flexibility? Yeah. You look so excited. <laughs> you look like a this kid on Christmas. This like really made my life happier. <laughs> Truly, like cuz I just never knew, you know. Now my go-to thing is the second I get out of bed, I get my toothbrush and I brush my teeth outside because I'm like, I want to make sure I'm getting sun first thing. And I usually walk around my house like two to three times while brushing my teeth. And I'm like, cool, I've gotten like three minutes in. Great, like check the box. And then I try and drink my coffee outside and do my first bit of computer time outside or if I'm doing any journaling or something. And so that's like right there, like 30 minutes. But the reason this is important is because so many of our genes that control metabolism and a lot of aspects of our biology are like clock genes that are regulated by light or time of day. And I think what we have to remember is that our body has no idea what time it is. Light is the way that our body knows what time it is. And for all of human history, we were outdoors, we weren't inside four walls, and we didn't have artificial light. And so our bodies were like, oh, cool. It's the morning. There's sun. I can't hide from it. Maybe I can go in my cave, but like you're seeing the sun. And so that told the eyes and then the brain and then the clock genes, this is what we're doing right now. And then at night it was dark and things were turned off. Well, now in the past, just like very short amount of time, we've completely thrown that on its head. We wake up, we don't go outside there are some days if I'm not intentional, I could be inside till like 2 p.m. without even trying. You just don't go outside. And so it's like, wow, I have limited the information to my brain and my genes and my cells about what time it is and changed gene expression by not giving this energetic information to my body. And on top of the whole clock gene stuff, there's other things too, like vitamin D production, a really key metabolic hormone. And one of the ways we produce vitamin D in the body is sunlight hitting our skin and helping create this whole pathway that leads to vitamin D. And then on the flip side of all of this is that blue light exposure, which we're now getting more at night, we're getting a lot of this artificial light at night, is basically telling our body that at night that it's still daytime. And there has been strong associations between blue light exposure at night and insulin resistance. And I just think we're really throwing our bodies out of whack. So for someone who is worried about insulin resistance, who's dealing with like any of the symptoms we talked about, trying to lose weight but maybe having trouble doing it, like this is actually one that is worth thinking about, getting the blue light, getting rid of it at night, which of course is also going to help sleep, which is critical to our metabolic health, and then getting more sunlight in the morning. And again, this is without sunglasses, not through a window. This is letting that star energy hit our eyeballs, and don't stare directly at the sun, but take a nice walk just with your eyes open. And I think I aim for about 30 minutes, at least in the first half of the day, ideally as close to waking up as possible. And I think just like food is molecular information, just think about sunlight as energetic information. Both are information your body needs to function properly. What about birth control? I don't know the answer to that question, Hmm. actually. I was curious because a impacts your hormones. It certainly does, yeah. But I don't know if there is research on how it affects insulin sensitivity. There's a lot we do know about hormones. Certainly, we think about healthy estrogen levels as an insulin-sensitizing hormone. So we know that for women going through menopause, unfortunately, as we lose estrogen, we kind of go off this metabolic cliff as women. When you look at what happens at 45, that is the age in epidemiologic studies that women start outpacing men in terms of obesity, diabetes, Alzheimer's disease, and a lot of these metabolic associated issues like Alzheimer's dementia twice as high in women than men globally. And this is happening after menopause. When we lose those estrogen levels, we know that it has a negative impact on our insulin sensitivity person I would recommend who's like a really great writer about this, Dr. Sarah Gottfried, who's written Women, Food, and Hormones and helps women understand when you get to that period and you're losing estrogen, here's what we can do to help not basically succumb because there's lots that we can do. We have a longevity episode with Dr. Gottfried. Oh, amazing.
0: She's amazing. So you would say if somebody's trying to think about their metabolic health as they get older to think about their estrogen levels and trying to keep those in a good place?
1: I think so. I mean, we are going to lose estrogen at at menopause. And I'm certainly not an expert on bioidentical hormones and things like that. But just in terms of making sure we're keeping our glucose levels, if insulin sensitivity is probably going to go down when we lose our estrogen, then what are all the things we can do to make sure our insulin sensitivity is as good as possible? So I think that's the part that we can control the most. And since most of us are starting from a kind of rough place metabolically or in terms of insulin resistance – Right now, 130 million Americans have prediabetes or type 2 diabetes. So from a starting point, we've got a lot we can do. Like, it's focusing on those types of things. One, like, interesting factoid about glucose and menstrual cycle, though, is that we tend to be more insulin-resistant in the luteal phase of the cycle, so closer to our period, and we're more insulin-sensitive in the follicular phase. This has to do with the ratios of progesterone and estrogen during those two phases. So a lot of people wearing continuous glucose monitors will find that it's hard to keep glucose stable during the luteal phase post-ovulation, and sometimes they might not feel as good with the, the big spike. So maybe just micro-optimizing diet a little bit during that phase to stay a little bit more stable can sometimes help people feel a little bit better.
0: What about exercise? Are different types of exercise better or worse for blood sugar balance?
1: Probably the answer you're going to expect, which is that all exercise is good for blood sugar balance. And truly, there have been studies in yoga, resistance training, high-intensity interval training, walking. All of them are good (laughs) for glucose, especially if done consistently, but even acutely too. One of the benefits about resistance training, of course, and building more muscle is that The more muscle you have, the more of a glucose sink you have. It's just literally, it's like a freebie. It's just taking up glucose all the time. So that's actually been one of the most motivating things for me to try doing more resistance training, which is not like the thing I naturally love to do. Like, I'm like, okay, I want to build more muscle so that I get that glucose sink going. Just building more muscle is great. Not to mention Muscle is actually like an immune modulating organ. It produces anti-inflammatory compounds and things. And if you think about the whole inflammation spectrum and the metabolic spectrum kind of being very interlinked, like you just want to have good, healthy muscle. High-intensity airborne training, sprints and things like that, we know that that can actually improve insulin sensitivity the next day. Like it's a very acute effect. And so you might find that if you do like some really high-intensity stuff one day, the next day, maybe you're feeling a little bit more stable in terms of your glucose. I feel like when I run, I'm ravenous.
0: Is that a glucose thing or is that a me thing?
1: I feel similar. Like when I run, I get hungry. Well, actually when I lift, I get the most hungry. So I think it's, maybe it's just exerting and depleting some of your liver glycogen and whatnot. Then there's of course the question of fasted workouts, which yes. is becoming like a I was hot ask you about that. topic. I always debate because the workout's helping
0: to soak up any glucose spikes from your breakfast, but then I've heard other doctors say that like a fasted workout is more effective.
1: I think what I've kind of landed on is like a mix of all this stuff is kind of good. There are some days where I wake up and I feel like I don't need to eat before a workout. And so I do. And there are other days that I'm really hungry when I wake up and I'll eat a little bit before a workout. One of the things about the fasted workout, like what's happening in the body is that you have fasted for like 8 to 12 hours overnight. So you've actually depleted a lot of any excess glucose in the bloodstream. You've probably depleted some of that short term storage bank of glucose in the liver. The other place we store some glucose for quick use is in the muscle. That's where glycogen, which is the stored glucose in uh, muscle and liver. So you've kind of depleted some of that. And then you go into your workout and your body's like, I don't have a ton of glucose around. What are we going to use for energy? So then the body's like, we're going to use fat. <laughs> if you basically are low on your stored or circulating glucose, your body's going to do two things. It's either going to make glucose from like fat or protein, or it's just going to break down the fat it has and turn that into ketones. I like thinking about like, okay, if I'm doing a fasted like Peloton workout or a jog or something, or even a walk, I'm emptying out my stored glucose in a sense. And then flipping that switch to fat burning, which is the definition of metabolic flexibility. It's basically using not just glucose, but also another substrate that we have in the body, fat, for energy. And metabolic inflexibility is when you can't do that switch, basically. So I like the idea of like, okay, I'm going to give my body this opportunity to literally like clear out a lot of the glucose and kind of force it to burn some fat. I like checking my ketones sometimes so I can actually see that I am producing ketones. And that is actually like proof to me that I'm becoming more metabolically flexible, but that's not the only way to become metabolically flexible, but that's how I think about fasted workouts. And so, yeah, just kind of giving my body the opportunity to try burning a different type of, of fuel. And if I overload it with carbohydrates. All the time, it won't have the opportunity to do that. So then, um, resistance training, high intensity animal training, fasted cardio, but like truly walking is like a miracle for glucose. And I know you've talked about this with a couple other guests, but it's really kind of amazing. (laughs) Just taking a short walk after a meal can lower glucose responses by 30%. We do a lot of experiments with our community and we sent people 12 ounce cans of Coke and we're like, drink the Coke and just sit and chill, drink a Coke, and take a short walk after the Coke. And we asked them to keep all other things kind of similar, like get the same amount of sleep on each night, do it at the same time of day, don't eat anything beforehand. And the peak spike went from like 162 milligrams dress liter, which is quite high, to 132 milligrams per stress liter on average. It's like a 30-point difference just for like taking a stroll. Over the course of a lifetime, that makes a difference. And so a little post-meal walk, even if it's for Fifteen minutes can make a really big difference, and some of my favorite studies are around looking at walking during one big chunk of the day or walking for like one to two minutes several times per day and the research is pretty clear in a couple of studies that if you actually move even for a very short a period of times multiple times per day, you have better glucose and insulin levels than if you just do one chunk, even if it's the same amount of time cumulatively so the specific studies are. They took people in basically three groups. One group was walk 20 minutes before breakfast, lunch, and dinner. One group was walk 20 minutes after breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And one group was walk for three minutes every half hour like throughout the day. And they all added up to 60 minutes. But the group that walked for those three minutes 20 times per day had much better glucose and insulin levels. So I love this like little tip because it's so easy – to just get up and walk for, you know, two, three minutes and know that you're getting like a huge bang for your buck. It doesn't have to be like the intense longer workout necessarily, especially on those days that you just don't have it in you to do that. Walking just little bits around and moving a little bit makes a difference. So walking is definitely a big one, but I think it's just any type of exercise, whatever is fun for you, whatever you can do consistently, change it up day to day. Movement is great for your body.
0: What's your vibe on snacking? Like speaking of the 90s magazine stuff, I feel like it was to keep your metabolism going. You want to snack all the time, just fuel it, fuel it, fuel it. Is there truth to that at all?
1: No, I don't think so. Ultimately, we want to become metabolically flexible because metabolic flexibility really is freedom in the sense that it means that your body doesn't need to have glucose. Always at the ready to make energy. We want to be able to like, tap into that fat burning for energy, not necessarily for weight loss, but just to like to create energy. And one of the things I think about with like hanger is that if you are not metabolically flexible and you're finding that after a few hours, like two to three hours, you need a snack or you feel like anxious or hangry or just like really intense cravings, it could be a sign that your body's not f- tapping into fat burning for energy effectively. Sometimes when we're snacking like all the time, especially like remember the 90s, it was like six small meals a day. You're really not giving your body a break to just process what it's got and maybe then f- turn on some metabolic flexibility. With that said, I love snacks. So I just tend to be thoughtful about my snacks. And if I am getting hungry in between meals, I try and make it really nutrient-rich and low glycemic. Some of my favorite things for snacks would be like, of course, nuts. I love guacamole packets. I love hummus. I love flax crackers, seeded crackers, olives, coconut slivers, things like that. None of those things spike my glucose at all. So I know I'm keeping the insulin under better control. And those snacks tend to keep me more satiated. I've heard that dehydration impacts our blood sugar levels. Is that true? So I actually don't know if dehydration itself will change your glucose levels day to day. But dehydration over time is not good for our metabolism generally. But when we're dehydrated, we actually produce a hormone called vasopressin, which essentially feeds into metabolic dysfunction and increases our uric acid levels in our cells, which can kind of hurt our mitochondria. Basically keeping your blood osmolality, the fluid to salt ratio in the blood in favor of more hydrated blood is going to create a hormonal cascade that is better for metabolic health. That's interesting. Are there any things that we didn't cover that do have big impacts on our metabolic health? We talked about a lot of them. One that I'm thinking of is environmental toxins. More recently, there's been great research coming out showing that a lot of the environmental toxins we're exposed to on a day-to-day basis in so many of our products are actually specific mitochondrial disruptors. We now have a causal relationship between certain environmental chemicals and cells laying down fat. And there's several reasons that this can be happening, but some of it is microbiome effects, some of it is direct cellular effects like on the mitochondria, some of it is epigenetic changes. But the paper that was published on obesogens just this year, what I took from it was one, just as much as we can buy the unscented products with things that have recognizable ingredients in them, the better. So I'm kind of swapping out a lot of things in my house for the clean product stuff if I'm going to buy a new mattress, try and buy organic cotton or whatnot. But if I do have to buy a new thing, like new Tupperware, I'll buy the glass instead of the plastic. So it's just motivating me to make those small changes. Also, just keep building the biologic resilience to process these things. Like a lot of these toxins get processed in our liver and our gut, and so just keeping gut function on point with the fiber and trying to not hurt our gut function with unnecessary antibiotics or the nonsteroidal anti-inflammatory medications or too many pesticides or refined sugar things that hurt the gut. Like support the gut, support the liver. Basically, build biologic resilience. Make choices that. I can to reduce chemical exposure, and then do what I can to elect people who care about this. Vote, like vote with your dollar, and then think about who's talking about this because a lot of it comes down to just like huge lack of regulation around synthetic chemicals. I think we have like eighty thousand synthetic chemicals just being pumped into our environment, and most of them are like totally unregulated. And even the ones that are regulated, the rationale will be like, oh, well, at the level that they're in in this product or whatnot is not causing profound cellular damage. But what we need to always realize is that when we're exposed to thousands of these that are never studied in combination, they can have synergistic effects together. This is one area where increased regulation is necessary because we just have so little control over it as consumers. Do you have any other
0: favorite liver-supporting things that you can do to help get those things out of our
1: bodies? In relation to this conversation, I think one of the best liver-supporting things people could do is actually get rid of the liver fat. About 40% of American adults now have fatty liver disease, and a lot of children actually have fatty liver disease too. And some of the main drivers of fatty liver are excess liquid fructose consumption. So about essentially like high fructose corn syrup products. So that's going to be like the sodas and a lot of the drinks in the stores. And so many packaged foods have high fructose corn syrup, but that uniquely has an effect on generating liver fat. And then alcohol. Alcohol hurts our liver. It generates liver fat in a similar way that fructose does. So just making sure the liver is like as cleared out and healthy as possible. There's all the other like more kind of advanced stuff like herbs and various things. But those are some of the key ones I think about is just like keep the liver healthy by keeping it metabolically healthy. Do you have any favorite glucose balancing hacks? Definitely walking after meals. That one has been a big game changer for me. I think sleep is another one. Sleep is like my biggest wellness struggle. Like I am a good sleeper, but I really like to stay up late. I get up at different times, like almost every day. I listen to all the podcasts that are like, the number one thing you can do for your health is like go to bed at the same time and the night and morning. And I struggle with that so much. So trying to move towards at least getting the right quantity of sleep every night has been really helpful for me. So sleep, walking after meals, I think really just getting as much fiber as humanly possible. I just add it to like every meal. It's like another kind of like freebie. When you eat fiber with other things, you absorb less glucose and you support the microbiome, which then creates all these wonderful byproducts of fiber fermentation that are great for metabolic health, like short-chain fatty acids. So fiber walks and sleep are some of the things that have had the biggest impact on me and my personal glucose levels.
0: Red light therapy is one of those things that keeps being cited as a favorite tool of so many of the world-leading doctors on this podcast. It is an absolute game-changer for your skin. It reduces scars, stretch marks, blemishes, and it boosts collagen, and it stimulates hair growth for healthier, thicker hair. It also reduces inflammation at a cellular level, which is why I don't like to just expose my face to it. I like to go whole body for maximum energy and healing. That's why I love Bond Charge's Max Red Light Therapy device. It's a panel that you sit in front of at home. I use it while I'm meditating, which is such a good habit stack. And you get those full body benefits in addition to the skin benefits. Also, by the way, you have skin on your whole body. It has made as much of a difference in the sun damage on my chest as it has on my face. And it comes with protective eye goggles, which is so important. I have personally noticed a huge difference in my skin, but also in my mood. It makes me happier and calmer. And most importantly for me, this is something I've been working on a lot recently, in my energy levels, which makes sense given red light's positive impacts on our mitochondria, the energy centers of our body. And because you're in front of the panel impacting your whole body, you're going to feel a way larger effect. You need to try the wellness tool that doctors are raving about order the Bond Charge Max Red Light Therapy device and start experiencing the amazing benefits today. For a limited time, my listeners get 15% off when you order from bondcharge.com and use my exclusive promo code, LizMoody at checkout. While you're there, grab some of the circadian rhythm setting light bulbs. Yes, those are real. Yes, they're very cool. They're the ultimate addition to your daily Cirque Walk. That is N C H A rge.com, you'll also get free shipping and a 12-month warranty. Go now to get this exclusive offer. That's bondcharge.com with promo code LizMoody to get 15% off. It takes a lot for a health supplement company to wow me, but Symbiotica really breaks the mold. If you haven't discovered them yet, they make really different products than any other supplement company I've seen before. They have a lot. So I highly recommend that you check out their website and take their quiz to find out what's best for your specific goals. But I wanted to call out a few of my personal favorites. First of all, the topical magnesium. You all know I love magnesium and I've always wanted a topical spray that wasn't sticky, that felt good and luxurious to use, and that actually let the magnesium absorb into my body, which requires DMSO as an ingredient, which I have actually never seen in any other product. If you have achy muscles or sore feet, this is literal heaven, and I also love it before bed to help with sleep. And then I have become increasingly interested in minerals. We talk a lot about vitamins, but adequate minerals are so key for energy. And unfortunately, it's become harder to get adequate minerals because our soil is so depleted of them. The Symbiotica Shilajit supplement is one of the best mineral supplements that I've found And the research around shilajit is profound. There's robust human and animal research that shows it acts on ATP in a way that significantly helps restore and create energy, which is one of the biggest things that I love it for as a low-caffeine consumer. There's also robust research around its anti-inflammatory properties, its brain protective properties, and more. I think of it more as a whole food than a supplement. It's a naturally occurring resin, and I just mix a little bit of it into my afternoon tea or my decaf coffee drinks. And like all Symbiotica products, there are no additives, fillers, toxins, or artificial flavors. Of course, I have a special discount for you. You can use code LIZMOODY to get 15% off plus free shipping on subscription orders. Again, that's code LIZMOODY for 15% off on Symbiotica.com. Okay, let's do a little bit of listener Q&A. First one, please talk about fruit. Is the villainization of fruit warranted? How can I include fruit in a blood sugar friendly diet?
1: Great question. Fruit should not be villainized. Fruit is an incredible whole natural food. And my sort of take on nutrition is that like unprocessed natural foods, like inherently are good. And fruit has so many beautiful phytochemicals and micronutrients. And like we should really not be fearing fruit. Some things we need to think about with fruit. One is the processing of fruit can concentrate things in the body that can lead to some of the nutrient stress that we were talking about. So, fruit juice does get you a lot of fructose pretty quickly into the bloodstream, and that can stress our cells. But when we're talking about like whole unprocessed fruit, villainization is definitely not warranted. Where I think there is room for micro-optimizations with fruit is that two different people may respond to the exact same fruit very differently in terms of their glucose response, and that's because we're all totally biochemically individual, and you and I could eat the exact same apple – or orange, or whatever, and I might spike 100 points, and you might spike 10 points. Does that mean that it's bad for me? Not necessarily, but going back to the topic of reactive hypoglycemia, if I'm trying to have a very stable day in terms of mood and energy and cravings, that 100-point spike is not serving me. This is not demonizing fruit. It's just saying that the physiology in my body and the big spike in crash is maybe not what I want that day. But there's a lot of fruits that for me might not spike me that much. And I might, on a day that I want to have more stable glucose, lean on those so I can maybe reduce my cravings and keep my energy more stable. Personally, I have found that grapes totally on their own tend to spike my glucose like a lot, a lot, a lot. But like tons of fruits don't. Kiwi, oranges, fairly unripe pears, Certain types of apples, berries, like, do very little for me. So I'm like, cool. I don't like grapes that much, so I'm going to focus on these. It's not like I'm depriving myself. I'm just making a choice based on my biofeedback from my continuous glucose monitor of, like, okay, I think I'll have a more stable, less reactive hypoglycemia a day if I eat these. Unfortunately, I think that the conversation has gone funny on social media a little bit with, like, fruit and glucose monitors because – If we're just thinking about like all spikes are bad, you can never have a spike, a spike is the worst thing in the world, then people start fearing certain fruits. But I just think about it as this is a category of food and some work really well for me and maybe a couple spike me a lot more. So I'm just going to maybe lean on these. I mean, sure, I had grapes yesterday, but like I'll also maybe be a little bit more thoughtful about how I eat them. If somebody doesn't have a continuous glucose monitor, would it just be about paying attention to how you feel after you eat grapes and blackberries and apples and things like that? I think it's one really dialing into how you feel. A glucose spike for me feels like a little bit elevated and a little – It's like like high, a little bit. A little high, yeah. (laughs) yeah, A little light. And then I usually feel a little bit tired 30 to 45 minutes after that. So if you can tune into that, I think that's one clue. But the other thing you can do is just like go off directionally – glycemic index stuff. Glycemic index is definitely not perfect because of that bioindividuality. And the paper that really blew this all up was this paper from Cell about seven years ago called Personalized Nutrition by Prediction of Glycemic Responses, where they basically really threw a wrench into the whole glycemic index thing because they showed that two healthy people could eat the exact same food and have totally different glucose responses based on all these different biochemical factors inside their body. With all that said... I think directionally, you can look at a glycemic index chart and be like, okay, if I'm trying to have less of a glucose spike, I'll eat these fruits that are somewhat lower glycemic load or glycemic index. And maybe I'll avoid these ones up here so much or pair them differently. So that's how I would approach it. See how you feel and then use some directional signals from glycemic index.
0: What is your favorite energy or protein bar? Oh, good question.
1: There's this bar that I really like by Resist Nutrition that was actually made by two amazing young ladies who had PCOS and they decided they wanted to create the bar that was more metabolically healthy. And it's really good. The ingredients are really clean. I'm pushing them to make an organic version. It's some of the best ingredients I've seen in a bar.
0: This is from a listener. I always have a midday crash where I get exhausted around 3 p.m., even if I've eaten a really protein, fat, and fiber rich lunch. What is causing this and what can
1: I do? Interesting. First of all, kudos for her for being so in touch with her body and like listening to those signals. I think it could be so many different things. I'd start by examining the meal a little bit because I think sometimes we can think the meal is super glucose balancing, but sometimes there's some hidden things in there that we might not know. Of course, salad dressings are one of these some big spikes I've had were in restaurants where I thought I had a total glucose stabilizing salad or something like that with protein and all this stuff. And then I have like an 80 point glucose spike and it's like, what was in the salad dressing? It wasn't even that sweet. Like, are there any little culprits in there that are causing a spike? Maybe she's really sensitive to root vegetables. And so is thinking that that's actually like more of a complex carb, but it's actually spiking her. So this is where a finger prick glucose monitor or a continuous glucose monitor can be really helpful. And the finger stick glucometers are so cheap these days, like $25 at a pharmacy or you can get them on Amazon. Of course, a CGM, a continuous glucose monitor is a little bit more expensive, but both work. So if you prick your finger like 30 minutes, an hour, an hour and a half after the meal and see if you are spiking and crashing. That would be step one for me. And then look for any hidden ingredients. Ketchup, for instance. It's like ketchup, it's like always the secret spiker for people because most ketchup's have added sugar in them these days. And then I would probably be thinking about other factors that might be making her tired, like her sleep and maybe wearing a sleep tracker for a little bit. And I think sometimes we can be getting eight hours of sleep, but maybe there's very little deep sleep or restorative sleep in there. And there could be some hacks on the sleep side that could be helpful with that. And then I might also look into like food sensitivities as well. Because I think sometimes aside from glucose and metabolic stuff, there can be some subtle Digestive or food sensitivities that could be happening that are making you feel tanked, even though it's independent of the glucose stuff.
0: So, let's say we're doing all this stuff, we are metabolically flexible, we're fueling ourselves in the way that our cells want to be fueled, we're taking care of them like they're little babies. Is the promise there that we are going to reduce our risk of future disease? Is the promise that we're going to undo the PCOS? all of these sort of negative downstream effects, of fertility problems, are we going to undo them? Are we going to reduce our risk of future? What is the promise you're kind of leaving us with here?
1: I think that both those things are the hope. Like you gave the example of PCOS, there's six or seven studies that have looked at what happens when you put people on a more metabolically healthy diet. And in many of them, there's been extremely promising results of restoring fertility and reducing PCOS symptoms and improving insulin sensitivity. So one is, yes, symptom and disease reversal. When I was in surgical residency, I had like four severe conditions that I was dealing with. And when I got just this basic cellular stuff figured out, which took really uprooting my whole life, they all went away. When we get our bodies more metabolically healthy, we can't expect to improve if metabolic dysfunction was a part of the physiology of why you're feeling the way you're feeling. And then I think the long-term chronic disease prevention is really like a huge, huge one. If people stay insulin sensitive and keep their glucose levels in a healthy and stable range throughout their lifetime, so we're not talking about the day-to-day trends, we're talking about like over the course of your lifetime, are you keeping it in sort of like a healthy range and your insulin levels and your insulin sensitivity, you slash your risk of nine of the 10 leading causes of death in the United States by like a large percentage. You just totally improve your chances of not getting Alzheimer's, dementia, heart disease, stroke, chronic kidney disease, chronic liver disease, type 2 diabetes, dying from a viral infection, a respiratory infection. All those things just get totally slashed if you are metabolically healthy and your insulin sensitivity is good. And even cancer, like high insulin levels are significantly associated with worse cancer outcomes. And that's a big motivator for me. I know I can keep these things under good control now and hopefully throughout my 40s, 50s, et cetera. It actually takes a huge weight off my shoulders. It's not a guarantee that I'm not going to get dementia or anything, but I know that I'm doing what I can to really reduce the risk of those things. So it's really about both feeling good now and ideally reducing risk of future chronic disease. There's just been a lot of scientific literature showing what happens when you get people metabolically healthy. And a lot of the symptoms do reverse, even things like acne, you know, PCOS improves, erectile dysfunction improves. It is one factor that leads to cellular dysfunction that can lead to disease, but it's one that we can do something about. I would encourage people to pursue it if they're not feeling their best, feeling fatigued and just want more energy. Examine whether going down this route can help minimize the severity of whatever sort of symptom they're dealing with.
0: Can you leave us with one homework assignment, something that everybody listening can just start doing immediately today to
1: optimize their metabolic health? Literally the next meal that you eat today, take a three-minute walk afterwards, like around the building or up and down some stairs if you can't go outside.
0: We love it. Amazing. Casey, can you tell us a little bit about where we can find you on the internet?
1: I'm on all the social platforms at Dr. Casey's Kitchen, DR Casey's Kitchen, a lot of the work I do is on levels Instagram and Twitter and blog. And so that's at levels and then levelshealth.com. And what is levels, just briefly? We are enabling access for people to understand their metabolic health better through facilitating access to continuous glucose monitors so that you can get a better sense of how food's affecting your health and how all these different other lifestyle factors are affecting your metabolic health. These continuous glucose monitors really traditionally have only been prescribed to people who have an overt metabolic disease like type 2 diabetes. And we've really waited until people are really in that disease state to give people visibility into these biomarkers that we know are important. And our philosophy is really like, why don't we give this information to people like so much earlier? So hopefully we can make a few adjustments to get on top of these things before it progresses because many of these conditions are preventable and then we create just like a huge educational ecosystem around it to make it as community-based and supportive and flexible as humanly possible like we're not a keto company we're not a you need to eat this diet company it's really more about metabolic awareness body awareness and having like a really expanded toolbox for things that you can do to keep things a little bit more stable in your glucose. It's
0: also so fun. I wore one and it was so fun to get to do little experiments on myself. Like I found out that my morning smoothie didn't spike my glucose, which made me so happy. I was like, I nailed my recipe. I felt really good about that. But it's really fun to get to see how different things impact your body.
1: Totally. I find it really fun. And sometimes I don't wear it because I'm just like a little bit data overloaded. So I kind of go back and forth, but it does make me feel this real sense of like, assurance of like, I know where I'm at and I'm not just waiting for my doctor to tell me what my health is. Like I have some visibility into it that I control. And that sense of empowerment is a big part of why I left the conventional medical world to really do more of this, because I think the conventional medical world can often be very disempowering. And there's like a power dynamic where the doctor has your information and kind of feeds it to you. We all should be in control of our own information about our health. And so this is like a slight way of trying to push towards that world. I love that. Well, thank you
0: so much for taking the time to come on and share so much wisdom with all of us. I really appreciate it. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Wow. I am still literally trying to digest all of that incredible information that Dr. Mean shared with me. And I'm like still processing the fact that metabolism has nothing to do what I thought it was during all of that messaging and magazine covers of the nineties. I've also already ordered basil seeds. Did you guys know about these? I cannot wait to add them to my green smoothies. Just so much good stuff in here. Now let's talk giveaway. Dr. Means is generously giving two lucky winners a free Levels annual membership and a one-month CGM trial, a continuous glucose monitor trial. That is $400 worth of prizes per winner. If listening to this episode made you want to find out more about your personal metabolic health, now you can do it for free. I have tried Levels myself and I found it so fascinating to see how all of the different lifestyle components and the foods that I was eating and the things like sleeping well or less well impacted my blood sugar. It's just really helpful data to have. And you can kind of like test all of the different things in your life. To enter, just follow me. I am at Liz Moody and Dr. Mean. She is at Dr. Casey's Kitchen on Instagram and comment on my most recent post, something that you loved or learned from this episode. The post does not need to be about this episode at all. Just be sure to mention Dr. Mean so that I know that you're entering and good luck. If you're new here, make sure that you're subscribed so you don't miss out on any future episodes. We have amazing ones coming up, including one with a neuroscientist sharing brain hacks and an episode full of tips for getting the best night's sleep of your life. So subscribe, subscribe, subscribe so you do not miss out on anything. Also, head over to HealthyConvo.co to get your hands on all four of our amazing conversation card games. You definitely want to check those out. They are life-changing. And that is it from me. I love you, and I will see you next week on the next episode of the Healthier Together podcast. I have been looking for a quality fish oil to take myself and recommend to you for years, and I genuinely couldn't find one that met my quality standards. And then I kept hearing from doctors on the pod about how important it was for our brains and our hearts, even dermatologists who said it makes a huge difference for our skin. And I was like, okay, I truly need to figure this out. Then I found O3 Ultra Pure Fish Oil from Puri. The brand was literally created because the founder ran into the same problem as me he couldn't find anything truly pure enough to take daily. Puri believes in full transparency with all of their products. Every single batch is third-party tested by the Clean Label Project and IFOS, which tests fish oils looking for the highest quality, safety, and purity standards in the world against more than 200 contaminants, heavy metals, pesticides, glyphosate, dioxins, and bisphenols, to name a few, and they always receive a five out of five star rating. Every Puri bottle actually comes with a QR code so you can scan and see the results for yourself. This is well above the standards of any other fish oil I've found, which is so important to me because if I am consuming something for my health, I don't want it to actually be causing harm. Puri's fish oil is so fresh, you'll never get any gross fishy burps because every batch is tested to make sure it hasn't oxidized and gone rancid. And yes, that is where those burps come from. Do not just take my word. With Puri, you can find actual data behind every single batch, which makes Puri a supplement brand that you can trust. Right now, Puri is offering my listeners 20% off their O3 Ultra Pure Fish Oil and all of their great products. Go to my special URL, puri.com slash Liz Moody and use my promo code Liz Moody. This even applies to the already discounted subscriptions. You will get almost a third off the price. Go to P-U-O-R-I dot com slash L I Z. M-O-O-D-Y. Do not wait. Use promo code Liz Moody at P-U-O-R-I dot com slash Liz Moody.